Hi everyone, Anthony Fantano here, internet's busiest music nerd. Hope you're doing well, and it is time for another edition of the Needle Drop Podcast, our weekly review roundup podcast where we go over some of the best content we have dropped throughout the week on the Needle Drop and Fantano channels. This episode, like every episode, is stacked with a handful of great reviews. We have one of the new Beyonce Homecoming Live record, a recording of her 2018 Coachella performance that is a career-spanning performance well over 90 minutes long and absolutely incredible with its backing instrumentation, its drum lines, its medley of songs throughout the Beyonce discography. We are talking about it. Also going to give some thoughts on the latest records from rock outfit Cage the Elephant, experimental Japanese hip-hop outfit Dos Monos, and their latest full-length LP. And I'm also going to be talking up the newest album from singing in, in rapping phenomenon, uh, Lizzo, her new breakout record, Cause I Love You, is an amazing mixture of pop and soul and rap and everything in between. A bit of a think piece coming through on the new Kanye West Sunday Service series, as well as a track review of the new FKA Twigs cut cellophane. So here we go, the Needle Drop podcast, Baban. <laughs> And it is time for a review of the new Beyonce live record, Homecoming, The Live Album. This is a new live album from one of the most iconic and game-changing singers of this generation, Queen B. Beyonce. This project is essentially a 2018 live recording of Beyonce's Coachella performance, which marked the first time a black woman had headlined what's arguably the largest music festival running today, and the performance on this one was certainly one for the history books, with a career-spanning setlist featuring not only tracks from Beyoncé's last full-length album Lemonade, but also Destiny's Child Cuts too, where she's of course backed up by Kelly Rowland, as well as Michelle Williams. Jay-Z and Jay Balvin also make appearances during the setlist as well, though this is not a very feature-heavy album or anything. The main focus on this album is most certainly Beyonce and the massive drumline and horn section she assembled for the performance on this thing. Which is honestly a genius way of transcribing all of these songs that cover so many different eras in Beyonce's career. The horns, the drumline, the backup singers all create a very cohesive sound as we move from hits that range from 20 to 2 years old. Beyonce even manages to deliver deep cuts on this thing like I've Been On, which I'm pretty sure was a SoundCloud-only drop, a tribute to Southern hip-hop, Houston hip-hop, chopped and screwed with Beyonce rapping in these pitch down vocals on a trap beat. So again, all of this live instrumentation, all these drums keep the momentum and the excitement in this performance very high, and also allow Beyonce to deliver these songs in a medley type fashion where you're getting little snippets of, of the biggest tracks of her career, all segueing into each other very seamlessly. The only moments on this album where I think the recording and the performance really loses some steam is where the drums and the horns fade away in favor of whatever the original instrumental was for the track that Beyonce is performing. This happens during cuts on this album like Yonce and Formation and Partition. Tracks that by no means should be a lull during a Beyonce album because they're some of her biggest bangers ever. And Beyonce is vocally going as hard as possible on some of these tracks. Like, really laying the swag on heavy and sometimes grunting or shrieking or just like really throwing in these wild vocal embellishments. And I'm sure these cuts sounded amazing live during this performance, but the mix of this live record is a little wonky. There's so much reverb and ambient noise surrounding some of the instrumentals played in the background of these tracks that 
they're kind of hollowed out, don't have enough punch. They leave Beyonce vocally feeling a little unsupported. This isn't generally an issue for the tracks that feature more horns, more drumline, as they do have a lot more presence in the mix, and the performances on these drums and horns is so phenomenally tight. It's just rare you hear this sort of thing platformed on an album with this much exposure. It brings a really fresh and dynamic sound to Beyonce's classics, especially when they take it upon themselves to revise some of her biggest and most popular songs in very creative ways. I'm definitely partial to the way Beyonce broke down the song Sorry at one point with this funny routine she had going on with The Bugaboos, and the way they picked the track up after that, totally reinventing it. There are plenty of other cuts on this record too where Beyonce is playing the hits a bit straighter, but still the singers, the horns, the drums are worked into the original instrumental pretty creatively, so it feels like you're hearing a new version version entirely. Like on the song Diva, where the group vocals and chants on that track sort of raise it to like new levels of epic. I wouldn't say all reinventions on this record go over without a hitch though. Flawless is definitely one that stuck out to me as a bit awkward, a little bit like a sore thumb. Beyonce's very aggressive vocalizations over the incredibly faint synth line in the background just feels uh, overpowering. But for every moment like this on Homecoming, there is a countdown or there is a hold up where Beyonce gives just a stunning vocal performance. Also, her rendition of the track I Care with the added drums, the extra touch of reverb, and the super glossy kind of futuristic synths on that track, it sounds very close to the original, but with all this added extra sound and this sort of organic in the moment feel of the track, it's almost like I'm listening to a cross between the original cut and Phil Collins in the air tonight. It's like on that level of grandiosity, we're hearing this original Beyonce track fused with some art rock and arena rock vibes. There is a portion in the set list where Beyonce starts pulling on some tracks that have more of an international flavor in her discography. The J Balvin song, Mi Gente, where she had a feature not too long ago, is performed here with Balvin appearing on the Coachella stage with her. We also have the track Baby Boy from back in the day featuring Sean Paul, a dance hall flavored hit that featured some production from Scott Storch back in the day. And finally, to tie this moment up, we have the reggae flavored You Don't Love Me. This is maybe not one of my favorite sections during the set list or anything. Uh, don't really care for the J Balvin track all that much, but that's not really Beyonce's original song anyway. Still, even though this isn't one of my favorite moments on the entire Homecoming set list, the transitions during this spot are just as amazing and flawless as they are everywhere else. After this moment in the set list, we pretty much go on on a trip down memory lane, Beyonce starts dishing out some of her biggest classics, some of those Destiny's Child tracks, ends it all off with the very soulful Love on Top, a cute Blue Ivy interlude, and also some thank yous to the backup dancers, the production crew, the drumline, everybody. And all in all, this, this thing is mega, 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 mega impressive. Even with a few duds in the track list and a less than impressive mix job on this thing, <laughs> the, the, uh, the uh, blah, 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 blah. I'm partially just speechless because this is just a live performance of epic proportions. Beyonce really pulled out all the stops on this thing. The performance and the way all these tracks are melded together is so impressive it overcomes easily what few aspects of this album are less than perfect. It's like hearing the entire Beyonce catalog filtered through the sound of a pep rally at a historically black university, and quite possibly one of the most ambitious live records ever to be released. To the point where I think even non-Beyonce fans can listen to this thing and come away uh, relatively blown away by just how above and beyond she went with what she presented here. I'm feeling a decent two strong eight on this thing. Transition into the next review.
and it is time for a review of the new Cage the Elephant album, Social Cues. This is the latest full-length LP from Cage the Elephant, a rock band that has had a pretty interesting trajectory over the years, somehow transitioning from making very boilerplate, radio-friendly, garage rock and alternative rock, to releasing one of the noisiest, trippiest, and most well-produced rock records of 2013, Melophobia. But the further away we get from that album, the more I fear that it may have been some kind of flash in the pan, I don't know, because the band's next record a couple years later was already a very obvious drop in quality. Stylistically, it seemed like it was hanging very much in the same indie alternative garage stomping grounds, but with diminishing returns, as this record really had a total lack of novelty, of memorable songwriting. So with social cues over here, I was really hoping for some kind of redemption an improvement. However, I wasn't very enticed by the teaser tracks on this record, to be completely honest. I didn't find them very catchy at all, and they failed to, in my opinion, forecast any new exciting sound or direction for the band. The song Night Runner touts a surprise feature from none other than Beck, but his vocal performance on the track is kind of awkward and leaves a lot to be desired. Plus, the instrumental is a very middle-of-the-road, uninspired, garagey twist on dub reggae that I don't really get a lot out of. But I was kind of wrong going into this record assuming that the band wouldn't have a new or a cohesive idea or theme in mind for social cues, because in comparison with everything Cage the Elephant has done up until this point, this album is definitely their moodiest. I won't go as far as to say this record is dark, even if a bulk of the material seems very directly inspired by dark times experienced by band member Matt Schultz, who suffered the loss of a few friends and also his marriage over the course of the creation of this album. Still, many of the tracks on this thing don't really come off all that tortured or bleak. Sure, there's a vague sense of dreariness throughout the album. I guess there are some dark intentions on this record, but for the most part, in my view, I don't really see them as having all that much teeth. And that's kind of the issue I have with social cues generally. As dramatic as some of these tracks try to come off, it doesn't really feel like it goes far enough much of the time. The instrumentation is too agreeable, the performances are too tame. Again, given what has inspired a lot of the material on this record, there is a severe lack of trauma or danger or thrills coming out of the vocals here. Even as the band kicks this record off singing about being born on the wrong side of the tracks. I mean, the edge is there, but it's kind of a dull edge. It's like being threatened with a butter knife. I mean, sure, it could hurt you if some psychopath is wielding it, but it's it's still not as scary as, like, you know, a machete. There are tracks on here that feature some eerier instrumentation, but it just kind of comes off sounding like Cage the Elephant are a bunch of dudes wearing color-coordinated blazers at the high school Halloween dance, just like rocking out to some Monster Mash, which is kind of the case on the track House of Glass. Also, the song Tokyo Smoke, which features these really awful faint guitars and these whooping synth sounds in the background that are totally unnecessary. Also, the title track on here, points of which sound like uh, what you would get if you forced the Strokes to write a song that 
sounded kind of spooky. The song Ready to Go almost feels like a sinister take on what the band Cake might do if you completely strip away the band's typical knack for groove. Also, not much in the way of interesting lyrics on this track, which I think should be more of a key factor in the appeal of this album, given just how uh, dreary the record tries to be. You can only hope for lyrics that bring the sadness and the emotional intensity of this album home, so the listener can kind of relate to it, feel the impact of that. But instead we get lyrics like, it's an illusion, this admiration, mutilation. my isolation, it's an illusion, this admiration, my mutilation. My isolation, my isolation, my isolation, it's an illusion. The illusion being really like an illusion of substance. And not just the lyrics falter on this record, but again, also the vocals as I mentioned earlier, which in some instances on here just really fail to sell these tracks. Like on the Spotlit Loves the Only Way, which clears out a lot of space, you would hope in this context, the vocals would really come out and kill it. I know Cage the Elephant doesn't you know, typically feature super flashy vocals or anything like that, but you should at least get an emotional performance on this cut, no? Instrumentally, it's easily one of the most dramatic tracks on the LP, and I think a pained or a harrowing vocal performance is kind of needed here. Here, the vocals don't really appeal, neither do they on the deadpan verses of uh, War Is Over, which features these sickening hooks where the band really continues to... Uh, I, I don't know, lay these very weird expectations at the feet of this very general sense of love. You can build your walls, love will tear it down. You can hide your heart inside a man-made house. You can build your walls, build them to the sky. One day you'll find love was on both sides. The war is over. I mean, it's a cute aspirational sentiment, but ultimately it doesn't communicate all that much. I was really left hanging on this record. Granted, I didn't go into it with super high hopes, as the teaser material, again, just felt very bland and average to me. And Cage the Elephant have definitely evolved past, at this point, the meat and potatoes, pop-centric garage rock that put them on the map in the first place. But in a lot of ways, I feel like things have come full circle for the band in that they're working with a new sound now, but what they're delivering is, is honestly almost as boilerplate. Now it's just kind of moody, shimmery, vaguely psychedelic pop rock that kind of reminds me of like the last Black Keys record. How bland and boring and uninspired and, and basically ineffective that album was. Sure, there are some very cool and chilly atmospheres on this thing, some warm bass lines and crisp drums, some lovely touches of strings and extra instrumentation on here. It's all produced very well, no denying that. And there are a few songs on here that actually are kind of compelling. For all of its flaws, I do like the intro cut on here quite a bit. The song Ready to Let Go has one of the most solid vocal melodies on the entire record. The chorus bursts beautifully. And Skin and Bones, in my view, is easily the most emotionally potent cut on the entire record. The lyrical visuals of rolling with trauma and trying to move past it and tucking and rolling at the sign of, of danger or threat uh, was pretty interesting and I think was a, a very hard-hitting takeaway from this song and this record. Generally, though, I do find social cues to be severely lacking when it comes to style and character, persona, performance, songwriting, and lyrical substance. Again, obviously this album is inspired by some dark times, but for whatever reason, the band has somehow managed to 
shield the listener from any and all of that trauma. On the surface, this record sounds very dark, but it has little to no emotional impact, as it seems like the goal at the end of the day was still to write a very breezy easy to put on rock record that you don't really need to think that intently about. I think there will be quite a few Cage fans attracted to this LP given its backstory, given its kind of cohesive direction and mood, but beyond those surface level elements I didn't really find much that was appealing or stunning about this record. I'm feeling a light to decent five on this thing. Transition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the Dos Monos record Dose City. This is the debut full-length album from an experimental hip-hop outfit hailing from Japan. These guys have been building a small buzz for themselves over in Europe and the Far East. They actually starred in a television mini-series that they actually soundtracked as well. And of course it would take a label as weird as Death Bomb Arc over here in the States to say, hey, let's, let's, let's release this group's music. That's what we want to do. I must warn my audience, though, many of you, including myself, will be hitting a language barrier when listening to this album. Yes, the group does rap in a mix of Japanese and English, but it is very much mostly Japanese. However, I would argue anyone listening to this record that does not speak Japanese, there is still a very deep appeal for this LP coming out of the instrumentals, the unique sound that the group generates on this thing. They sit pretty firmly in a 90s hip-hop, hardcore hip-hop, jazz rap aesthetic. The likes of DJ Premier and Wu-Tang and Redman and A Tribe Called Quest, as well as The Roots, seem to have a pretty profound influence on the sound of this record. But Dos Monos have taken the sounds of these chunky beats, these jazz samples, these aggressive rap flows, and evolved them into something truly experimental, cacophonous, and weird. Though still, there are a lot of aspects of the group's music that I think could be appreciated from sort of like an old head perspective. The track Theater D, which happens in the first leg of the album, features some pretty great flows from each member, some great group chemistry. But as the track progresses, the beat and the vocals are kind of unexpectedly touched up with all these weird psychedelic embellishments and also these strange metallic hits of percussion kind of popping their way in here and there. It's like being caught up in a very alien but totally exciting whirlwind of sound, or watching a really badass action movie in another language. I may not get some of the subtle plot points that may run throughout the movie, but because of the genre, I'm already somewhat familiar with the form, I know what to expect, and I can still see tons of explosions and kicking happening in every direction. Plus the lighting and the editing and the cinematography and the color correction are all really good. The madness that you hear on Theater D pretty much continues through the rest of the project. I would say that Dos Manos really only falter when they fail to let a great idea pan all the way out by cutting it short or going too mild on a track like Agarta, which in a lot of respects feels like very meat and potatoes hardcore hip-hop to me, just in another language. There are also some points here where maybe some of the flows and deliveries come off a bit too 
over the top, a bit too goofy or cartoonish, or take the track 20XX, where I don't think the group do enough to put a spin on their very obvious influences as the flows and the instrumental on this track just very much sound like a straight play out of the RZA playbook. This song really does sound like a Wu-Tang clunker picked up off the cutting room floor and just like turned into an album track. The song Clean Your Nerves though works with pretty much the same reference points but has better flows, a beat that is absolutely pummeling, feels like 12 pianos are being dropped on top of me at once, with a whole horn section as well. Meanwhile, a bunch of reversed rap verses are being thrown at me in every direction. The song Bacchus is similarly overwhelming, but for different reasons. The beat on this thing sounds like the group are sampling all this old jazz and incidental music from the golden years of television and the sound palette, the background keeps switching and changing and shifting like somebody's constantly changing the channels. The song Schizoidian, oddly enough, sounds like what I think schizophrenia would sound like if personified in a hip-hop song. With its doubled and jumbled vocals, its dissonant, relentless, and tangled instrumental. So there are a lot of experimental and exciting and very creative ideas on this record flying in all directions. However, I do feel like the noisiness, the cacophony of this group, it does over time in the track list kind of become a crutch. They pretty much paint themselves into a corner with it, like on Abdication Before He Dies, where, I mean, the group sound just becomes utterly predictable. There really are a handful of tracks on here where unfortunately the group doesn't really add much to the track list outside of a vague sense of deja vu. And again, it's not so much to do with the language barrier here as much as it has to do with the group constantly favoring very similar instrumental builds and flows. So while Dos Manos's sound is very idiosyncratic and very distinct and very specific, it's not incredibly varied at this point anyway. Still, it's a pretty good album though. It is complex, it's charming, it's confusing. It's about 35 minutes long, so it's not really overstaying its welcome. And most likely the experience you have with this album will be unlike the experience you have with any other hip hop album for the rest of 2019, I, I can guarantee that. So if you wanna hear something that is supremely strange and simultaneously celebrates and mutates uh, the sounds of hardcore hip-hop, 90s hip-hop, then give this thing a listen. I'm feeling a light to decent seven on this record. Transition into the next review. And it is time for a review of the new Lizzo record, Cause I Love You. Detroit singer and songwriter, and I guess also rapper Lizzo, here she is with her third full-length album. If you haven't noticed, she has been having quite a year with her very cheeky, smart, and self-empowering blend of pop rap and soul finally gaining traction after years of singles and years of albums. The non-singles she dropped last year were some of the best she had ever put out so far. I named her track Boys as one of my favorites of 2018. And I also think Lizzo owes her popularity today to the power of memes as well, as there were tons of video clips on social media of her playing the flute while dancing and performing and, and singing that went 
pretty viral. And this year, 2019, the year of our Lord, Lizzo has actually been charting with some of her latest tracks like Juice, as well as the song Tempo, featuring one of her biggest influences ever, Missy Elliott. So I've been loving every single track that's been teasing up to the release of this album. I've been pretty excited to hear it, and I am not at all disappointed. By no means is this a perfect or a super cohesive or an epic album. For the most part, it feels and, and runs very much like a loose collection of tracks. Every song on this thing going as hard as possible for the maximum amount of single potential. Aside from the pretty mellow closer on this thing, which is a beautiful and intimate moment of finality. But still, even though this album is very much a collection of singles or tracks that wish to become singles, Lizzo's approach to making a single, Lizzo's approach to making a banger, is very different than that of your average pop artist. And what sets her apart is her very distinct over-the-top voice, her personality, the blend of soul and hip-hop influences that run throughout her music, the live instrumentation, the versatile palette of moods and emotions and musical styles. And in an age where overloading your record with as much streamable crap as possible is kind of the name of the game, Lizzo has favored quality over quantity with a very tight 33-minute runtime. And Honestly, I am very grateful for this album, not only because it is a very enjoyable LP, but also records like this make my job kind of easy because everything that is so good about them is just super on the surface, painfully obvious, it barely needs explaining. <laughs> the quality and the talent that Lizzo brings to the table is just instantaneously apparent. And it's not like this album is incredibly abstract or strange either. I mean, I could literally hand this record to my mom, and she would probably love the sh** out of this album. But also, that's not to say that this record is, is like some dingy old pop throwback or anything like that. This is very much a young record for young people, but for those of us who maybe value a bit some of those traditional elements of pop songwriting, of soul songwriting, I think you will get a lot out of this album. Let me start by saying Lizzo is a pretty dynamic, entertaining, and inspiring performer who shines on pretty much every track here. There are a few cuts on this record, though, that I think are a little too overproduced, kind of sterile, where the vocals or the instrumentation are maybe touched up just a bit too much. The track Soulmate, I think, is the biggest offender when it comes to that. I love the sentiment of this song, I love Lizzo's attitude on this track, even though there are some elements of the self-love angle this record takes that I might not totally agree with on a personal level. At the end of the day, what turns me off about this track the most is just the overly slick instrumentation, the very pristine and primped soaring background vocals. It's just far too clean, far too glossy, which is kind of funny considering how this track is about self-love and embracing yourself as you are in a way. The song Heaven Help Me does have a lot of musical elements I like a lot. I especially love Lizzo's voice on this track. So of course it is disappointing to hear the very rich pianos on this song, Lizzo's lead vocals, and even the gospel choir on the back end of this track, almost at odds with some of the trap percussion laying underneath all of it. As much as I do love the trap beat and the production aesthetics it's ushered in along with its popularity into multiple genres, it doesn't need to be everywhere. And this is a track where I do question its inclusion. Because the vocals, the pianos, the tune, it's all very smooth and swaying and vintage and beautiful, and the beat just sticks out against it like a sore thumb. I get the pressure Lizzo might have been feeling on this record to make nearly 
nearly every track here sound as trendy and as modern as possible so that it appeals to the widest number of people. But there's already enough of this on the rest of the album, even on tracks where I think this marriage of old-school soul songwriting and modern hip-hop production actually come together successfully. Like on the opening track, the title track, Cause I Love You, which is a dramatic, hot, horn, heavy, romantically traumatized piece of soul with skittering hi-hats. Some pretty glamorous pianos, and above all else, Lizzo's most monstrous vocal performance on a record to date. The way she's yelling and screaming and wailing all over the song, she is just vocally a powerhouse. Even if she doesn't have the most range of anybody in her lane, she certainly has uh, a lot of emotion and just a, a lot of volume to throw out there. And certainly isn't afraid to push herself vocally to the limit where her voice is cracking and just on the verge of an emotional breakdown. And certainly that plays into the theme of this song quite a bit, as Lizzo is very much playing a part where she is being driven almost psychotic by this love that she has for this person she's got in mind. It is a catchy and epic and near-theatrical depiction of how maddening love can be. The song Like a Girl is another highlight for me on this thing. It is a hard-hitting, addictive female empowerment anthem attached to a pretty brash and loud mix of dance pop and synth pop and trap. Also, I love the beaming hook on this song, which features some pretty cool call-and-response vocals. Throw it. Like a girl! Like a girl! I've heard quite a few songs produced just like this in pop and hip-hop over the past few years. There's something about this cut instrumentally that sort of reminds me of that Travis Scott song, Pick Up the Bone, with Young Thug. However, with this song and this vocal performance, Lizzo has easily surpassed pretty much everybody operating in this musical lane on this type of song. It's easily one of the best pop and rap fusions I've heard in a while. The song Juice, one of the singles from this thing, brings a pretty nice mix of disco and funk into the fold with some splashy guitars, vintage drum beats, a synth lick that sounds like it was pulled out of an Earth, Wind, and Fire song. If you interpret Juice as Lizzo's swag or her potential to <laughs> be attractive to other men, you will most likely get pretty quickly the very playful and braggadocious attitude of this song. I also love the rhythmic and sort of spoken word-ish breakdown around the bridge of the track that I think adds a, a boatload of personality to the track too. After this, with the song Jerome, we get a wonderful spotlit ballad in 3-4 with a chunky drum beat and a kind of synthetic backdrop. It is a classic vibe with a very modern update with Lizzo's stunning voice at the center of all of it, shining like the sun, with Lizzo singing Jerome, take your home, come back when you're grown, basically putting off this relationship until this guy is ready to be what this relationship needs for it to work. Either that or just not being able to deal with his baggage. The message of the song is kind of a mix of you need to fix yourself, but also eh, it's not so much you, it's kind of me. Still, we see Lizzo here on this song facing reality making a tough decision, which is kind of an interesting change of pace given the opening track to this thing where Lizzo is lovesick, and on here she is love logical. The song Crybaby comes off like a kind of freaky and eccentric play from the Prince playbook with a hard grooving bass line, some thick bright synths. Lizzo's lead vocals on this track are like an explosion of anguish and desire. She's like a depressed 
heartbroken Betty Davis. Also love the bright and ringing resonance of the loud, layered guitars and synths on this cut, too. And finally, my last major highlight on this record I saw to be Better in Color, which is an anthem all about... I guess, interracial love or basically being open to love across racial lines or seeing and understanding that love comes in different shapes and colors and so on and so forth. Obviously a cute, lovely, endearing, heartwarming sentiment. Something that shouldn't need to be said, but almost kind of does. I love the grand vocal harmonies on this track, the punchy beat. I also love Lizzo's attitude and some of her hilarious lyrics on this track, the weird vocal break she takes as she's talking about the many colors that love comes in, saying rainbows and sh**. The track vocally and lyrically sounds like what you might hear out of a makeup commercial, but in the best way possible. The song itself sounds like a commercial, like an advertisement for not being a total asshole and a piece of sh**. The song Exactly How I Feel featuring Gucci Mane is uh, maybe not so much of a favorite for me on here. The song itself is kind of a hodgepodge of ideas that are not very balanced between the screaming kettles and the random refrains and the very loud, interruptive group vocal hits. Gucci's appearance is a tad bit underwhelming. Also, the beat breaks on this thing, for whatever reason, kind of reminded me of the cha-cha slide. And I know I didn't go into great detail on it, but I do love the track Tempo featuring Missy Elliott. It's, it's kind of like another revisitation to the idea of the subtle, quiet, low-key rap banger. Lizzo once again bringing sticky, instantly memorable lyrics on this thing about <laughs> being thick, needing tempo, slow songs are for skinny hoes. <laughs> you know, again, this album at the end of the day might be like a compilation of Lizzo's attempts at writing as many hits as possible. There's not really a whole lot of common threads being pulled throughout all of the songs on here or, you know, some kind of grand theme or flow to the entirety of this record. But still, there's an incredible amount of talent on this album and way more hits than misses. This record is definitely a show of a bright new day in pop and hip-hop if going forward we're going to see more artists like this. And also, as good as this album is, I can't help but feel in a way this is Lizzo just finding her voice and just getting started. Either that or everybody just finally noticing and now she's ready to really kind of take the bull by the horns and take advantage of this opportunity with her best songs yet. And with the album coming out this good with Lizzo succumbing to a lot of trends and also working off a pretty loose framework, imagine how amazing her next record could be if it were a bit more focused and the sound and the production were a bit more specific to exactly who she is and, and what her influences are and what her sound could develop into going into the future. The personality, the vocal range, the songwriting ability, the production on this record, pretty much everything on here is relatively impressive to one degree or another. Also, shout out to the producers on this thing, one of which is credited multiple times ex-ambassadors, which if you guys remember, they had uh, some input on that really bad song from uh, Eminem's revival record. I'm actually kind of surprised to see them here on this Lizzo album after that, but what they contributed to the LP sounded really great in this instance, so... Yeah. So yeah, overall, great record. Loving this record. Really happy with how it came out and excited for where Lizzo is going next after this one. Feeling a light to decent eight on this thing. Some quick thoughts about the Kanye West Sunday service performance that happened at Coachella this past weekend, Legendary Music Festival, Kanye West building up to this performance. It's a bit of an apex of this Sunday service 
performance series that we've been hearing so much about, seeing so many clips coming out of, seeing Kanye at the center of all these performers who are dancing and playing instruments around him. It's a very collective, large experience uh, that is very spiritual in nature. And uh, this Sunday service at Coachella was a kind of big event because a lot of these clips of these Sunday services so far are kind of short. We're not getting a big picture of it, but there was actually a, a large stream of this Sunday service performance, even though it was sort of viewed through a <laughs> very small uh, peephole point of view in the video feed. And the audio wasn't you know, really that great either, though Kanye did debut some new music at this last Sunday service performance. And now that we're kind of seeing a larger picture of it, and it kind of seems like Kanye is is not just doing this for fun. It's very much like a PR move for him. It's very much sort of like a new wave, a new performance style, a new form of expression for him. Now that he's really dug in deep on this Sunday service performance style, I thought I would give my opinion on what exactly this means. Now, if you guys have been paying attention to either my commentary on Kanye or my reviews on Kanye over the past year or so, you know that the last... 365 days, maybe 400, 500 days or so for Kanye have been kind of rough, a little tumultuous. Kanye not necessarily at his best as far as his mental health goes, uh, not necessarily at his best when it comes to how many people perceive his mental health-based decisions to be, uh, a lot of erratic behavior, a lot of strange rants, the whole uh, Trump embrace thing that disturbed a lot of his longtime and hardcore fans and will most likely be uh, sort of a linchpin for a lot of fans out there who have kind of turned their backs on Kanye thinking that, okay, well, now he's just gone off the deep end. Don't trust the guy anymore. He's just too far gone at this point. And of course, on top of that, we're talking about the ridiculous interviews, the slavery comments, so on and so forth. You, you remember it all at this point, I hope. At the end of all of this, we eventually reached a point where Kanye said publicly on Twitter that he was going to separate himself from politics. He felt used. It had become painfully clear. I think even to some people who were on the right and liked Kanye's embrace of Trump and so on and so forth, that maybe this wasn't like the best direction for him to be going in. And now it seems like we have reached a point where Kanye is focusing most, if not all of his energy back into his music, his family, his religion, these performances, and how it's ultimately all going to pan out, I don't know. But what I can say as of right now, it seems like we're almost in the middle of a redemption arc for Kanye, of which he has many across his entire career because Kanye is uh, kind of a live wire. He's an unpredictable figure who uh, is obviously his, his biggest fan, but also his uh, biggest enemy as well. And even though these Sunday service performances are a relatively new thing for Kanye, I can't help but feel like this performance series is almost an attempt by him to get back in touch with his roots in a way, because there was a point in his career where religion and Jesus did play a larger role in his music and his songwriting, and I think that does put him in a position where in order to go down that road, he has to go back to those college dropout and late registration days, a lot of the clips coming out of this Coachella series, especially on official Twitter accounts like Def Jam's, uh, do feature 
clips of songs from that college dropout era, but now they're being reoriented in a very refreshing way with a huge group of musicians playing with Kanye. I love the very collective, organic, and in-the-moment feel of these performances. It's actually pretty amazing. This is how music used to be made and used to be performed before the conveniences of DAWs and electronics and um, PAs. And obviously, you can still continue to make music like that now with all of this new technology, but the ease of it allows us to create music and perform music in a more isolated space. So when you do sort of see music being performed in the very organic and and very large scale context that Kanye is doing it uh, in these Sunday service performances, it's actually pretty exciting and uh, in a way revolutionary to sort of go back and realize just how good some of these foundational elements of music performance truly were. And even though in this newest Sunday service, Kanye was embracing a lot of the older material from his discography, I'm hoping that what he's doing here does kind of point to a new way forward for him. Because it would be amazing at some point in the future to hear Kanye making music in this very large and and very group-oriented context. It would be pretty exciting to hear a record created this way from Kanye. For me personally, it would honestly be pretty amazing to hear Kanye go back a little bit and embrace some of what made him and his music so great to begin with. Obviously, I want Kanye to continue forward and evolve as an artist, but if these Sunday services whose music and style and sound are very much based on the early leg of his career are indicative of where he's going forward, the forecast of his music to come, I think that's pretty exciting. Having said all this, though, I think we should also be aware and conscious of the fact that uh, whether it's intentional or not, Kanye is very much a ringleader as well. And I I do like these Sunday services. I do like what I'm hearing coming out of them. But uh, this is all very much I, I see as a PR move in a way as well. He clearly wants everyone watching this stuff and to interpret something out of it, pull something out of it. He wants what he's doing here to essentially be a new chapter in the ongoing story of Kanye West. And given everything that's brought us up until this point, especially Again, those most tumultuous months that happened in the very recent past, I think we definitely do have reason to look at what he's doing here a bit skeptically and say, okay, is he just trying to win me over by going back to the old days, by embracing religion again, by doing something that's a bit more wholesome and uh, spiritually enlightening, where we see him uh, uh, being sort of broken down emotionally and we reconnect as a result of that with Kanye's humanity. Kanye is most definitely a mega talented musician and writer and an enigmatic performer, and his genius level in those fields is also reflected (laughs) by his genius level in the fields of public manipulation and also marketing. I mean, this dude was literally selling church clothes worth hundreds of dollars at this Coachella performance. (laughs) And that, along with a few other things that uh, can be gained from the performance, people who are truly religious at heart and adhere very closely to uh, the teachings of the Bible might see some of what Kanye was doing there and, and how he was marketing himself to be a bit blasphemous. I think that's understandable too. I mean, I would mostly hesitate to go that far given just how open to interpretation a lot of these old religious texts are and just how wildly they are sometimes interpreted much more wildly than I think Kanye does personally. So again, on that front, not necessarily mad or upset at Kanye or anything like that, but I think as we go into this new album cycle with Kanye, which is most likely coming just around the corner, uh, I think it's important to just be aware of 
just what Kanye wants people to see these performances as, how people interpret his progression past this very tumultuous point in his career. I guess we will eventually see if it pans out into some good music, and we will see if it pans out into, uh, I don't know, the crowd kind of taking Kanye back. While he didn't alienate his entire audience with the whole Trump thing over the past year or so, uh, he certainly alienated a good chunk of his audience, and who knows at this point, Uh, if those people are going to come back in a way after uh, all that. Given all of the ups and downs in Kanye's career up until this point, I would most likely say yes, but that's still a personal decision at the end of the day that I can't make for anybody else. And it is time for a track review of this brand new FK Twig song, Cellophane, that just dropped this week. Very quickly before we get into the review, I do want to shout out the tour I have coming up very soon. It's about a week, just about a week since I'm shooting this video until this tour starts at the very beginning of May, the first date over here in Vancouver. Don't even worry about it. That date sold the hell out. Uh, the rest of them still do have general admission tickets Available, though, which are down there in the description box. All right, so FKA Twigs, it's been a while since we have heard from the UK singer and dancer, alternative R&B artist, easily one of my favorite artists currently working in that field, in that genre. However, uh, working in quotation marks as it has been a long time since we have heard a batch of new songs from FKA Twigs. Uh, not since it says uh, here 2015 with her last full uh, uh, EP. Uh, it's been even longer since we heard a new full-length album. She's yet to follow up her breakthrough project, uh, LP1. Uh, hopefully this year we get an LP2. <laughs> so, I mean, I, don't, I personally don't know what the holdup is, but uh, she's going to keep us waiting this long. The, the time span of like three SoundCloud rappers' careers uh, hoping she's coming through with something good. So, Twigs, Cellophane, new single, let's give it a try. Uh, ba bam. Okay. Uh, I have to say, right off the bat, maybe I'm a little disappointed in how that track ended and fizzled out. It almost felt like it uh, somewhat finished on a, a cliffhanger or something. It just felt like a very. Uh, abrupt ending. However, everything up until that point is is pretty stunning. Honestly, the singing from Twigs, while it is very breathy and uh, theatrical, and she's not exactly going super aggressive or anything, uh, it's certainly more intense emotionally than her vocal performances in the past, which typically a uh, pretty subdued, kind of whispery. Uh, obviously skilled in their execution, but in comparison with this, much more low-key. The singing on this thing is incredibly dramatic and uh, spotlit in the very bare production on this thing. While there are some very interesting edits and electronic glitches that are pretty surreal and even unsettling that occur in the second leg of this track 
for a good deal of the first portion. In fact, the entirety of the first portion sounds pretty much just like Twig's and a piano. It is very naked, not the usual setting for Twig's voice, but still pretty stunning and gorgeous. The sense of longing and loss and desire coming through in her singing and the lyrics as well, where she just sounds anguished over the demise of this love, this romance, this relationship, it's very uh, tangible. And the way some of the vocal lines she performs on this track just have this this very shaky vibrato. It's like she's being overcome with the emotion, the worry, the dread of why didn't I do it for you? <laughs> Not to sort of make fun of her emotional state in this track at all. I'm just noting it's 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 a very intense performance, even if, again, it's not the most voluminous performance. There is, again, a, a sort of intensity to the intimacy of this track and how alone and how isolated she feels in this instrumental. And then, again, as I noted earlier, eventually you reach a point on the song where these pianos are sort of being stretched and twisted and the production is getting a lot glitchier and, and weirder. And uh, I don't know, there's something about it that, to me, just feels really disturbing, like the whole world around her is just kind of melting or warping or crumbling. There's something about the way the sounds are being treated in this instrumental that, uh, and I don't know how old this song is, this could have been produced months and months and months ago, uh, but there's something about how it's treated that kind of reminds me of some production trickery that uh, I enjoyed and remember hearing on the new Billie Eilish record. Not to draw one-to-one -one comparison there, I don't think the uh, overlap between Twigs and Eilish is that deep, but, uh, but still. Still, there is something uh, about this track that felt kind of sweet, poppy, sad, and surreal, uh, much in the same way that, that Billy's latest stuff is, in a good way, in a good way. So again, only thing I really didn't love about this track was how I thought the ending fizzled out quite a bit, but everything up until that point was, uh, I'll say it again, stunning. And Twigs putting out an album in the future where the vocals are a bit bare, a bit more intimate, the production features more glitches, more organic instrumentation, the balladry is a bit stronger. All of these potentials, based off of what I'm hearing on this song, for me, uh, for someone who's enjoyed a lot of her output up until this point, uh, all of those uh, potentials are exciting. All of those prospects, very exciting. And that is going to do it for another episode of the Needle Drop Podcast, everyone. Thank you for listening. You can make sure to not miss a single episode of this podcast. Wherever you're listening to it, make sure you subscribe. Also, while you're doing that, make sure to leave a review, leave some comments, some positive feedback. Helps out the podcast, helps out the podcast. You can also hit us up on social media, twitter.com slash the needle drop or afantano on Instagram. Also, we are on YouTube, youtube.com slash the needle drop and youtube.com slash fantano. Want to shout out Jonah, who assembled this episode along with every episode of the Needle Drop podcast. And we will catch you in the next one. Love you, love you, love you. Anthony Fantano, the Needle Drop podcast forever. forever.